Welcome to the Southland Podcast, a resource produced by Southland Christian Ministries located in Ringgold, Louisiana. We trust that this podcast will encourage and equip you in your walk with God. Thank you all. Take your Bibles tonight. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11 tonight, please. Tonight I'm going to deal with a subject matter that has become uh, an increasing burden uh, for me um, as I have grown up in evangelism seeing many of these things as I have been a youth pastor, as I continue in the realm of evangelism. Um, and that is in regards to our men and uh, the deficiency of manhood. Gentlemen, our manhood is under attack masculinity is trying to be stamped out. I'm not trying to be some masochist chauvinist pig. Please don't understand, misunderstand me here, okay? We don't need to be brutes, okay? We don't need to be wife beaters or put our wives under our thumb and think that we are the master and they are the servant. Although I have heard that when your dishwasher breaks down, you slap her and tell her to get back to work. I'm just saying, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just seeing how many of you are awake right now after that great supper, okay? So no, but there are some guys that believe that garbage. They use and abuse their wives. They use and abuse their kids. They act like gorillas. That's not manhood. On the other hand, we now are growing generations of effeminate, weak-kneed, spineless, gutless guys who call themselves male, but you really have to question it. Then we bring in the gender, gender identity crisis, right? Guys, let's not make light of it. May we be careful be careful to not adopt too calloused and harsh of an attitude towards the unbelievers who are growing up being brainwashed and being taught these things and living in this realm. Listen, I deal with teenagers by the tons every summer. I've dealt with it in the course of evangelism. Listen, it's a very real thing. And these guys, these, these kids are struggling and people truly are wondering, what am I? How sad. But you know what's even worse is that we have young men who are growing up in Christians' homes and they are being allowed to act effeminate. Yeah, right. Let me tell you something. Young man, you look at me. You teenager, close to teenage, look at me square in the eyes. Let me tell you something. The only feminine thing that ought to be in your life is your wife when you get married one day. That doesn't mean that guys can't cook. I can cook. And I'm pretty good at it. And I don't mind telling you so. 
I can do dishes. We equate some things that go on in the home as women's work. No, it's a job. You know, get over it, do it as need be, okay? We relegate certain things as, as things. And we have to be careful. But on the same, on the other hand, I know, I know of families who they, all they let their kids, you know, they, they, they let their kids learn how to sew dresses as young men. And that's all they do. Am I saying that sewing is wrong? Am I saying that you can't learn some decent things possibly from that? Okay, I'll give you some of that. We're not teaching young men how to learn heavy equipment, how to work with their own hands, how to stand up. And here's a major problem. The major problem is that we don't have a good biblical definement, if that's a word, but since I'm the preacher up here, I can say that definition (laughs) of what a man is. Many years ago, I read a book. Many good things in that book. Four men grew up together being very good friends. And they, as they grew up and as they got married and had their families, they, they still were around each other, engaged in each other's lives. And they began to talk about this subject matter. And they asked this question, what is a man? It's an interesting question. Because a lot of people will define a man as by what he maybe does. Like, if you hunt, well, you've got to be a man. No, you don't. Now, I, I love to hunt. I think I made that abundantly clear, okay? I love to hunt. But guess what? Being a hunter does not make you a man. Right. Right. Well, I can swing an axe. Well, good. Join the club. But that doesn't make you a man, right? What is a man? More importantly, What are some biblical principles that we can consider that would help us to more clearly define what a man should be by how he lives? So I want to give credence. This was a book, I forget the author, but it's entitled Raising a Modern Day Knight. The main points that I'm going to give to you tonight are from that book. I am not going to plagiarize myself, okay? I did that in college and almost got kicked out because of that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a long story, okay? <laughs> and, uh, oh man, don't even go there. Okay. So I do want to give the book credence for these main points because I felt like this was fantastic material. All of the other information, all of the sub points and sub subsequent information are from my personal study in addition to this message. So I just want you guys to understand that first and foremost, okay? But I want you to note four things that these guys came up with from a scriptural point of view that define what a true man is. And let me tell you something, guys. This ought to be what defines each and every male in this room. Number one, a true godly man is one who rejects passivity. Two things in regards to this. Number one, this is a physical rejection of passivity. Look at 1 Samuel, uh, la, 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 la. I'll get it right here. 1 Samuel, 
11, verse 1, okay? I'm sorry, I am in the wrong book. Second Samuel, please forgive me. That meal was just too good. I can't get anything straight now. Second Samuel 11, verse 1, it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. I hate this chapter. Because we see the fall of one of the godliest men recorded in Scripture. And do you know how that fall began? Physical laziness. Physical laziness. He tarried. He should have been at war. This is what kings did. He should have been out there. Maybe he shouldn't have been out on the front lines, but he should have been out there helping with the strategy, the planning, the checking, the the encouraging of his troops. That was his responsibility. And he got lazy. He became passive. And we know how the story ends, right? Devastating. Listen to Proverbs chapter six, if you would. Verse six says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep yet? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and thy want or thy lack as an armed man. Now, let me say something about this passage. This is not saying that you are to work 24-7. This is not excusing you being a workaholic because being a workaholic does not make you a man and it doesn't make you godly. In fact, I have seen more men in the ministry ruin their lives physically, ruin their lives spiritually, destroy their ministries and destroy their families because they were workaholics. That is not what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching the principle of being diligent and of being responsible, of providing, of doing what is needful to make ends meet. We're not teaching that. We're not putting people in the, in the realm of opportunity, our, our children, our young men, to do that. Is it any wonder we, why, we have, why we now have men in their 20s whose job, whose job is to play video games? I can't even fathom that. Don't get me wrong. Playing a video game here and there, fine. But 8, 10, 12 hours a day living in a realm of fantasy? Are you joking? And we wonder why we are becoming more and more of a spineless nation. We are wondering why we have men in the church who absolutely do nothing if they show up. Come on, guys. We must reject physical Passivity. 
Here's what Paul said in a different strain of thought. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. There was discipline. There was effort. Guys, we have a responsibility to not be physically passive, to not be lazy, to not be slothful. When we have work to do, we work. We do it diligently. We do it for the glory of God. We do it to the best of our ability, even if it's not perfect. And by the way, don't be a perfectionist. That's sinful. Why? Because it's pride that drives you. Be excellent in your labor. Because being excellent is that you are doing the best that you can for the glory of God to the extent of your abilities and resources. But being a godly man that rejects passivity also means that you reject passivity in a spiritual sense. Philippians 2.12, the latter part of that says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that say? Clarification. It's not saying that you are working for your salvation. It does not contradict the rest of Scripture. Mike, I believe, already referenced tonight, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Ephesians 2, 8, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So this is not a passage that is contradicting. It is literally saying this, take responsibility for the development and for the advancement of your Christian life. We have men that they want to come to church and they want to sit in church and they just want to go numb. They want to think about what they're going to do after church. They want to watch other people do because they don't have the fortitude to get engaged and get involved. And they make all kinds of excuses. And there's a reason why so many churches are filled with members where the women do more than the men. And it's absolutely gross and disgusting and not not so to be. Okay, we're just going to shuck the corn real good tonight, okay? Because this is needful, folks. This is, this is why we're in such dire conditions in our country and in our churches and ministries. We need to be diligent to reject spiritual passivity. No one else can make you godly. You have the responsibility to arm yourself with God's word, to arm yourself with prayer, to engage with other Christians, but to take the responsibility with God's truth and God's principles and God's commands and God's grace and to live your life in the ways that he instructs to make you godly. It's not your wife's responsibility. It's not a deacon's responsibility. It's not your friend's responsibility. It is your responsibility. Therefore, give attendance to it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, or first, 2 Peter chapter 1, we, we read in verse 5 and following, it says, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue knowledge, and so on, right? Down the passage. Again, what is that saying? You have what you need. God has given you the resources for you to develop in your spiritual maturity and completeness as a Christian, but you must be diligent 
to make sure that these things are an integral part of your life. It doesn't just happen, guys. So we must reject passivity. Secondly, a godly man is defined as, as one who accepts responsibility. Would you turn over to 1 Samuel, turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 17? This is one of my favorite chapters. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's so many verses where I'm, and for time's sake, I, I don't want to, to, to read a bunch because otherwise we'll be here till 10 o'clock. And you'll all be sleeping on me. Verse 29, and David said, I love this. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David wasn't putting on a bravado here, guys. He wasn't, you know, trying to prove anything other than that he loved God and he was willing to go out and fight this Jehovah blaspheming giant, right? I'll go out. I'll fight him. Who does this? Someone needs to do something about it. I'll go out because my God's greater than this jerk. And he did. He accepted responsibility. I get so sick and tired of hearing men talk about, well, you know, I just can't be involved because of, and they start giving me excuses. Well, I've only been saved for, you know, so longer. Well, you know, I'm really, I'm, 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 I'm struggling with this still. And so, you know, I can't really, listen, guys, if it were a matter of us being sinless to be able to serve, none of us could be doing this. I couldn't be standing up here. None of these people who are up here singing, none of the workers that are engaging their lives, none of us could be doing anything for God if that were the requirement. God is not looking for that. Yes, he wants us to strive to be more holy. Yes, he wants us to sin less because there should be this development going on in our lives. But God knows our human frailty. He knows that we are but dust. He understands the internal warfare of the flesh that lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh of these two are contrary so that we would not do the things that we would. God does not make that the prerequisite. God is, God's prerequisite is that we strive to be faithful and that we accept responsibility for the opportunities that he puts in our lives and in our paths to be able to live for him. He sees what could or what needs to be done, and he attempts to accomplish it. I have guys, I see men all the time. And guys, I know I'm coming down hard on, on us, but listen, we need it. We have churches dying. We have churches closing. We have churches that are doing absolutely nothing for the cause of Christ because men won't be godly men. Galatians 6.10 says, is, you've been called, brethren, brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love, serve 
one another. Matthew 5.16 tells us this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. As people see you engaging your life for God, living for God, serving God, testifying of God, accepting responsibility for your faith, your Christianity, they see the light of Christ. Colossians 3, 5 gives us a different realm of responsibility. It tells us, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then it goes through that list of different morally corrupt sins that even good Christians can fall into. And then it goes down a few verses later and says, now also put off all of these. And that word, that phrase, we we know that mortify is a very sinister term, right? Because it literally means to put to death. We are to put to death these sins. We are to literally cut them out, kill them off out of our life. But then we come to this passage and it says, now also put off all of these. And we kind of think that there's a little gentler, kindler term. You know what the idea there is? It is literally meaning this, that you disrobe yourself and you throw away clothing that is stained, dirty, sweaty, stinky, because it is defiling you and it is making you an offense like most teenage boys to others around them. One of the things that I have to do when I'm at Camp Shatek or with our team program is I have to occasionally pull a guy aside or pull his counselor and say, you tell that guy to go slather himself in deodorant because he stinks. Nobody wants to be around someone who stinks. You realize if you live in filthy clothes, you never change, you don't shower, you know that even that can begin to affect your physical health. So when he says to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, he's not saying that these sins are not quite as important to deal with as with these moral sins. He's giving a different picture simply of the radical action that needs to take place in our lives as we deal with besetting sins. Why? Because we are striving to accept responsibility as Christians. Accept responsibility. He not only sees what could or needs to be done and then attempts to accomplish it. But secondly, he lives with an awareness of his personal accountability. Romans 14, 12 says this, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We will give an account to God for how we choose to live or not live as Christians and as men for God. That ought to sober us up. We should not want to fail our God. What if God had failed us? Not that we deserved it, but what if Christ had sinned? You say, well, that's impossible. I I know that. Think with me, guys. I know that. But what if Christ had? Where would we be? Hmm? But he didn't fail. 
And now we have an opportunity to show our thankfulness and our gratefulness and our love and our devotion and our commitment. And we don't. Because sometimes we forget that we will stand before God and we will give an account for the blessings and the opportunities and the responsibilities that we wasted because we didn't take our Christian manhood seriously. A godly man rejects passivity. A godly man accepts responsibility. Third of all, a godly man leads courageously. First Samuel. Twenty-two. This was when he was on flight from Saul. Verse 1, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented gathered themselves in him, and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. David became a leader. He wasn't trying to overthrow the king because he knew it was in his place. But he had an opportunity to take responsibility, and he did that. Now, I think that there is some serious misunderstanding about what it means to be a leader. And there, is a lot, there are a lot of men that repel from the idea of leadership because I think they have a wrong idea of leadership. They think that leadership means that you've got to stand up in front of people and you've got to act like a drill sergeant ordering them around, right? Barking out orders, being caustic, you know, and just, you know, bossing them around and delegating. And that's what a leader does. Or some people think that a leader is, is the one who's always up in front of people, Right. And so I've got to be, I've got to have this personality and, and I, you know, and I've got to be charismatic and, and, and I have to be able to sway people and all that. You know what? That's not really leadership. Do you understand what real, genuine, biblical leadership is? It's influence by example. Notice how. We lead. We lead by seeking to engage our life with the lives of others. That's servant leadership. Galatians 5.13, I already quoted that verse. I think I misquoted the verse, uh, the passage, so please excuse me. In Galatians 6.1, we also read, brethren, if a, if a man be overtaken a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. What is that saying? Engage your life with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians 2, 4 says this, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What is that talking about? It's talking about us not being so wrapped up in our lives and in, in, in our situations and what we want to, done, want to get done that we fail to look out and see the needs of others and engage our lives to serve and help them as we have opportunity. That's what a man does. A man has circumspection, if you will. He pays attention 
He sees what's going on. And as he has an opportunity to be of a help, to be of a blessing, to sometimes being a loving confronter, nevertheless, a still a confronter, because he cares about that person too much to let them go on in their sin. He does. He goes after it. He pursues it. Why? He's seeking to engage his life with them. He wants to be of benefit. One of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, right? What that means? It means to provide benefit. How is your life providing benefit to others? Because if it's not, you're not really a man. Not a godly man. Not a man by biblical standards. Notice something else. Not only does he look to engage his life in the lives of others, but secondly, and very importantly, he seeks to rally others to engage their lives for God. Hebrews 10.25 says this, And let us consider one another to provoke one another to love and to good works. I am very familiar with the word provoke because I have two older brothers and a rotten younger sister. No, I'm just kidding. What does the word provoke mean? To stir up, literally, is the idea. And usually it's utilized in a negative context, right? It's the idea of you knowing the right buttons to push and at just the right time, you push it. And what happens usually if things work out right is you get the reaction that you want. And usually it's some kind of explosion, right? You know? And you're like, yes, because then they get in trouble and you're like, well, I, I, you know. Well, guess what? Here in scripture, we have an allowance from God through the inspired work of a writer to provoke, to stir up, to incite others. Oh, yeah. I've been waiting for this all my life. I've already been practicing a little bit tonight, right? <laughs> incite to what? To love. To love as God loves. to let that love direct how I treat others, how I interact with others, how I serve others, how I live for God. I want to see the love of God, not just in my life, but I should want to see the love of God in others' lives. So I am seeking to interact and, and work with those people and, and, and help them so that they themselves will want to engage their lives in this area, but not just to love, but also to good works. The church is an amazing machine, if you will. Because it's comprised of so many different parts. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, it's likened to the human body, right? Think of the human body. Think of all the different parts that comprise your body externally and internally, right? The, the flesh, the blood, the vessels, the, 
the hair, the, the cells, right? The, the blood, all, all, all these different things. Remove one of those things. Can you live? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends on what you're removing, right? If I remove a thumb, I can live. Remove my heart, well, the point is this. The body works most efficiently when there is a cooperative working of the whole, right? When everything is doing what it should, you have a healthy, functioning, profitable life, right? Guys, that's what it is with us as believers. When I am seeking to live as a godly man, I should be living in such a way that is an example, a testimony, an exhortment, literally a, a, a stirring up to others to engage their lives to live for God and serve God. Why? Because if they're serving God and if I'm serving God and he's serving God and she's serving God, guess what's going to happen in our churches? Number one, there's going to be more service and there's going to be more ministry and there's going to be more edification and there's going to be more equipping and there's going to be more outreach to the lost. And we're going to see more souls receiving Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that process continue to repeat. And not only that, we, we, are, going, we are going to see greater life. We are going to say, see greater strength. We are going to see true spiritual healthiness, and functionality that God desires for every church. And that falls on us as men to lead in. So a godly man rejects passivity. He accepts responsibility. He leads courageously forth. And last of all, a godly man expects the greater reward. Now that seems odd. That's what defines a man. Well, let's consider this. Understand this. A godly man who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, has a different perspective, and he understands something very important. One, he understands the present and eternal impact of being a godly man. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 tells us this, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When you are living for God by rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility, leading courageously, you are going to live with this continual understanding that what you do for God matters, that how you are living, even with the struggles and even sometimes with the failures, as you still seek to live consistently, God is going to use that to have an impact on other people. You may never see it, you may never know it till eternity, but God is going to work. When you live for God, when you serve for God, when you stand up and you stand out like a man, God is going to use that for his glory and for others' good. Amen. That's right. 
I will tell you something that impacted my life as a young man. And I've never, I've never forgotten it. A couple of instances I'll tell you. We were at Dr. Carl Herbster's church. I was, I think I was 17. And we were having a revival meeting. And every day, they had a school there, Christian school there. And every day, I would go out and I'd intermingle with the teens, you know, playing pickup basketball, which I stink at, but, you know, you still try, you know, talking with them, interacting with them, you know, just stuff that I, that I just normally did. Well, one day, <clears throat> we'd been playing and it was, getting, it was getting time for me to go back to the trailer, get a shower and get ready for the evening service. So I, I ran back to the trailer where we were parked, and, and I, I get ready to go up the steps, and I saw a, a piece of paper on the step, and it had my name on it. Yeah, okay, I don't know. So I, I picked up this, this piece of paper, and, and it was very basic and rudimentary writing, handwriting. So it was, it was someone young. And as I read it, here's what it was. It was a note from a young girl. And basically, I don't remember it word for word because that was a long time ago. But basically what it, was, what it said was this, Scott, my name is so-and-so. I forget what grade she was in. She said, I've been watching you all week. And I want to thank you for your example, basically was what she was saying. That smacked me between the eyes. I was flabbergasted. I never knew that. I didn't know. I didn't know what kind of, you know, things were going on. Years later, I was counseling at the Wilds in 97. I don't know how, I mean, I had tons of campers, right? And regularly, every, you know, every evening, I would have a, you know, cabin devotion with my guys and, you know, just before we uh, went to bed. Years later, I was youth pastoring and we took my, my wife and I took my pastor's daughter and an, another young lady that was in our youth group at the time. And we went down uh, to visit Bob Jones University because this one girl was, was sort of thinking about it, you know, considering praying. And so we were like, okay, we'll, we'll take you down and we'll let you see it and, you know, see if that's God's direction for your life of, or if God's got a different plan and, and direction for your life. And so, so we go down there and, and, and so we're showing her around and she's going to some classes and so forth. And, and it came time for lunch. And so we went into the dining common and somehow I got separated from the ladies. And so they were, they were over in one aisle waiting to get their food. And I'm, I'm in another aisle and I'm standing there and I'm, 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 I'm looking around and I'm thinking, praise the Lord, I am not here, you know. Praise the Lord, I don't have to do this anymore. And man, did I really look that young when I was a college student? You know, I mean, all these different thing, things are going through my mind. And all of a sudden, as I'm just kind of reminiscing a little bit, recalling some of the good times and all that stuff, all of a sudden I get a tap on the shoulder and I, I turn around and, and there's a young man. And he says, are you Scott Savinsky? I said, yeah, I am. He says, do you remember me? I said, no, I'm sorry, I, I don't know you, man. He said, well, he said, I was 
one of your campers at the wilds back in 97. I said, no way. He said, yeah. He said, listen, I want to tell you something. One night when you were giving cabin devotions, you gave a challenge to us men to consider surrendering our lives to whatever God has, even if that meant going into the full-time preaching ministry. By the way, let me just say something. God has not called every man to full-time preaching ministry. And let me also say something very quickly. If you are not in full-time preaching ministry, you are no less of a person. And what I do is no more significant than what you do if you are seeking to do your use your life for God. Okay? So you can cut that garbage and that thinking out of your head right now. Okay? He said, but I could not get away from that challenge. I couldn't forget it. He said, and I want you to know that's the reason why I'm here today. Because God has worked on my heart to prepare for full-time ministry because of what you did. Because I would have never known that. I would have never known that. I don't, you know what? If that's the only thing that God ever used me to do to impact someone that was worth it. And who knows? Who knows what else I'm going to get to experience in heaven? And not because I'm some great person. I'm not. I struggle. I fail. I mess up. I sin. But I'm continuing to try to grow and develop and live and, and, and do these things that we're defining tonight. And I'm trying to serve God. Why? Because I do want to impact people. And because I'll tell you what, I realize that I don't have to see results to know that God is going to use my life to impact others. That's the greatest of things, to realize that your life, if you will be a true man, will definitively impact others. Another aspect of expecting the greater reward is that he, realize, he realizes the personal and eternal rewards that he will receive and enjoy from God himself. Paul, at the end of his life, said in 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Guys, I don't know about you, I don't think that the emphasis is to be on the eternal rewards. I think the emphasis is that it's God rewarding us. When I started training in the martial arts, my goal was to achieve at least a first-degree black belt rank. I started in a, in a system uh, that combined Shotokan and Okinawan, uh, Shotokan and Gojiru, karate from Okinawa. I attained an intermediate rank before I went to college. When I went to college, I joined the Champions for Christ ministry team. We'd go out, we'd do karate demonstrations, we'd preach the gospel, we'd give testimonies. And we just tried to simply use it, not as a gimmick, but as a tool to be able to present the gospel, the word of God to others. Uh, I proceeded to, to train, and the style that we trained in on the karate team was called Chinese Kenpo Karate. 
And so I began again as a white belt in that system, and I began to work my way up. I graduated four years later, and I was advancing. At that time, I was, a, I believe, a first-degree brown belt in our system. So I still had a couple belts to go. A couple years later, I tested and earned my first-degree black belt. So it took me a total of six years to earn my first-degree black belt. In Chinese Kenpo, you, your, your black belt test, typically your first two degrees require a day of private testing and then a second day of public testing. And you are to invite friends and family and you know other people who might want to come and watch. And so on that day, there's all these people. I was actually at my instructor's church. He was a youth pastor in Macon, Georgia at the time. And... So we go through the entire testing. I got my face beat in, you know, and, you know, I make it through and I passed. And at the end of that test, we had a traditional ceremony in which my instructor and I sat in a traditional Japanese style facing each other. And he gave to me my certificate of rank of first degree. And he then presented me as well the first degree black belt. And guys, when he handed that to me, he was commending me. He was telling me about, you know, how encouraged he was at my work, how proud of me he was as, as his student. And guys, you know what? That in some ways meant more than actually putting on the belt. I then went on and I eventually tested for a second degree black belt. And once again, as I tested and I earned that rank, we had that ceremony once again. And again, the crowning moment was when he personally commended me for what I had achieved. I earned my third degree black belt, but at that time it wasn't possible to, to, to have. And we, we actually don't do that kind of a public ceremony anymore. But he once again sent to me my certificate of rank and gave me his commendation. And each and every time it was very deep and it was very meaningful and it was very precious because it meant my instructor recognized my diligence, my faithfulness, my commitment, my work, my effort. Now, if that can mean so much in just a, a physical realm, guys, what do you think it's going to be like when we stand before God? God Almighty, God Creator, God Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The great I am and have the opportunity to sit at his feet and to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And by the way, receive some eternal blessings that are incomparable to anything that you could have ever had or experienced on earth because you sought to be a diligent Christian. Because I don't know about you, but that ought to spur you on to realize, listen, you might not get the applause. You might not get the pat on the back. You might not get the plaque. You might not get the verbal recognition of others. 
You might always be behind the scenes. You might never know of all the impact that your life in trying to live as a godly man had on others around you. But I guarantee you this, as you seek to be a godly man, one day you will truly experience the blessing and honor of God rewarding you himself. We need to be real men. And to be a real man is to be a godly man. To be a godly man requires that we reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect the greater reward till the day we die. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. It is our prayer that you would know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you have never experienced salvation through Christ alone, would you please reach out to us? You can contact us through our website at www.southlandcamp.org or call our camp office at 318-894-9154. See you next time on the Southland Podcast.